Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, October 8, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Kishore Hari. Indre will be back next week. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter, and on Facebook. And you can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. I've been devouring the new season of Serial, which is all about the criminal justice system in Cleveland. And so many of the stories revolve around the human bias that emerges in that system, sometimes unintentional, sometimes benign, sometimes deeply harmful. It has made me wonder if it would all be better without the humans at all. So I pose the question to you. If you were accused of a crime, who would you rather decide your sentence? A mathematically consistent algorithm, incapable of empathy, or a compassionate human judge prone to bias and error? This question seems out of science fiction, but it is our current fact. Numerous court systems are using algorithms to help sort and even decide cases. And algorithms don't just rule in the courtroom. They're becoming common at the hospital, in our cars, and certainly in our love lives. As we rely on algorithms to automate big, important decisions, it raises questions about what we want our world to look like. This week's guest takes a decidedly human view on algorithms with a mathematics twist in her new book, Hello World. Dr. Hannah Fry is just one of my favorite science communicators. She's also an associate professor in mathematics of cities at the Center for Advanced Spatial Analysis at the University College London. She works alongside a unique mix of physicists, mathematicians, computer scientists, and architects to study the patterns in human behavior, particularly in an urban setting. Her research applies to a wide range of social problems and questions, from shopping and transport to urban crime, riots, and terrorism. She also regularly appears on TV and radio and hosts one of my favorite podcasts, The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry. Hannah is also the author of many books, The Indisputable Existence of Santa Claus and The Mathematics of Love. Her new book, Hello World, is out now. Let's take a short break and be back with my interview with Hannah Fry. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, a company that is revolutionizing the way people color their hair. 
For decades, you've had two options, outdated at-home hair color or the time and expense of a salon. Madison Reed is reinventing that by offering the quality of salon color, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you came from a salon, but the reality is you did not. Experience beautiful multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door, on schedule for under $25. You can join the hundreds of thousands of people who have tried and loved Madison Reed. You can find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. And Madison Reed is honoring Inquiring Minds listeners with 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with promo code MINDS. That's promo code M-I-N-D-S. In 1963, John Coltrane recorded an album's worth of material at the famed Van Gelder studio. This music finally saw the light of day earlier this year and broke charting records globally. With three entirely new Coltrane compositions and new takes on fan favorites, both directions at once, the Lost Album is truly the holy grail of jazz recordings, featuring the classic quartet John Coltrane, McCoy Tyner, Jimmy Garrison, and Elvin Jones. The music on this album represents one of the most influential groups in music history, performing in a new, exploratory style that set the trajectory of jazz from that point forward. John Coltrane's Both Directions at Once is available on Impulse Records as a double deluxe LP, double deluxe CD, and as a digital download. Go to shop.johncoltrane.com and enter promo code 20 off Coltrane, all one word, 20 off Coltrane, for a 20% discount on all store items. That's 20 off Coltrane for a 20% off discount at shop.johncoltrane.com. Hannah Fry, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much for having me. You know, you're one of my favorite mathematicians slash science communicators out there. And for a book on algorithms, this is not really a book on code. It's really about humans and their relationships to algorithms. Uh, can you speak to why you chose to focus on humans much more than the algorithms themselves? So... Uh... There are a few reasons, really. I mean, this is something that, um, you know, as well as doing science communication stuff, um, th this is something that I've worked in, an area that I've worked in for a really long time. And um, I think that you have the groups of people who talk about the algorithms, talk about perfecting the algorithms, trying to make them as good as possible. And you have the people who are whose lives are being affected by algorithms. And those two groups of people almost never really talk to each other or think about each other. Um, and I think that that was really uh, where I sort of started coming at this from. I, I, a few years ago, I went and um, when I was quite junior and a bit naive, I'd been doing a project with the police in London, trying to create an algorithm that could predict how a riot might spread across the city. We had this big problem with riots back in 2011 in London. And then um, when I was very junior, I went off and did a talk in Berlin about this project. And I was just so naive about um, the implications of the work that I had, was doing. And I, and I gave this talk and I you know, made loads of stupid jokes during the presentation and stuff. And um, basically, if there is one city in the world which really understands uh, what it means to live in a society where the police have an awful lot of power over you, to live in a police state, essentially, it's Berlin. And they absolutely talk tore me apart really during this this q a they just totally took me down and it was quite justifiably so perfectly right that they did and i think that was the point when i started realizing that actually 
you can't just think of these two things as separate. You can't just think of algorithms and people as separate. You have to recognize that that if you're creating this kind of stuff, there are these moral implications for the things that you're creating. And then when I went back to London, I just um, started seeing things slightly differently and started noticing how often the people in the kind of algorithm community weren't thinking about the wider implications of their work. And that's really, I mean, this book has been kind of a long time coming really for me. Um, but that's really the starting point is that I don't think that you can think about algorithms in isolation. I think you, any algorithm that is that is being given power to 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 make decisions about an individual's future, I think you have to think about the human at the, the very beginning and all the way through the process. One reading of your book could say that you've painted a fairly bleak view of the world, um, of how much algorithms have an impact on our lives. But before we get to certain examples, um, just talk about how commonplace this is, because I don't really think about my life as being intersecting with algorithms very much outside of when I go shopping online. Mm, but actually, I think if you tried to live a day without an algorithm, you would really, really struggle. So you're not allowed to use your phone, right? No, the phone's off. Basically, your, your computer, you can't use anything on a computer. You can't, you can't get on, um, you certainly can't get on a plane, that's for sure. This you sounds probably... like a nice day so far, by the way. No phone, no computer, <laughs> no plane travel. Yeah, but you can't call anyone, right? So, you know, you can send them a letter, maybe, but probably not by now, actually, because I'm pretty sure the postal service will use all of this stuff. And um, I mean, you're you're kind of back to like, you know, sort of w- what the world looked like in 1900 if you if you're not using any algorithms at all. They're they're affecting absolutely everything. It's everything from what we're reading, you know, what we're watching, who we're dating in some cases. Um, they're in our courtrooms, they're in our cars, they're in our schools, they're in our hospitals. They're, they're just absolutely everywhere. There are really obvious examples like Google search, sure, um, you know, or Amazon's recommendation algorithm or, you know, the Netflix algorithm. But they're also hiding behind the scenes in all kinds of government departments and all kinds of retailers. They're just just absolutely everywhere. And before we get to the examples, I, I think one of the key elements of your book is that you you don't really make a value judgment, whether algorithms in a binary sort of way are good or bad, but you have to recognize that they're biased. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, so, I mean, that thing about the value judgment of them being good or bad, you, you said a moment ago that, that one reading of the book is that it's quite kind of, um, what, what word did you use? What did you call bleak. it? Dreary. Oh, bleak. Okay, there we go. Yeah, like a bleak look at the future. Actually, personally, I, 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 um, I think there's a lot of really positive stuff in there. And I think it's really important to remember that actually we're at this point in history where there's so much to be gained by using these kind of algorithms, you know, better cancer diagnosis, um, keeping people out of prison who don't need to be there, uh, keeping dangerous people off the streets, preventing crimes from happening, protecting victims of crimes that never need to happen in the first place. There's these amazing, amazing, amazing things that can happen. But I also think we need to be really, really careful about not charging into this and not thinking about the wider implications. Because exactly as you said, there's you can't look at an algorithm and say that in itself is good or bad, right? So, you know, for instance, um, GPS, satellite navigation, was invented to, to, to direct nuclear missiles. But now it's now it's used to, I don't know, deliver pizzas. And, like, there's nothing in the algorithm itself. It's not that makes it either good or bad. It's the way that they're used. And it's the, um, the sort of implications of their use on people that makes them either positive or negative. 
Well, let's talk about their implications on people uh, through the lens of healthcare, which is one of the areas you focus on, both in delivery of treatment and in finding of new treatments. And I I think we should start with healthcare first. You know, one of the raging arguments in the U.S. for a long time has been about how we deliver low-cost healthcare to everybody. And you cite some examples of how certain systems are using AIs uh, to to really think about treatment, both for good and bad outcomes. Yeah, absolutely, and they, these are increasingly um, they, these are increasingly being used around the world. Um, and the dream is great, right? The, you know, the idea that you can have something maybe just on your mobile phone that you input your your symptoms and it comes up with a diagnosis and connects you to the relevant healthcare provider without you know ever having to to leave the comfort of your own home um and all for you know such a low cost because it's just a machine that's there and ready to do it and you know i think everyone can buy into that dream not just in you know places like america or, or britain but in countries where access to doctors is really difficult you know like um developing countries where where there just aren't the doctors to go around i think you know that the idea of it is absolutely superb it's just really hard like this stuff is it, to, to create something that does that is not a trivial problem to create something that does that reliably without making mistakes that does it um without over over diagnosing people without without being too cautious uh, and thinking of the worst case scenario every single time, but simultaneously not missing those worst case scenarios when they happen. It's a really, really, really tough problem. And, you know, I don't think anyone's managed to quite crack it yet. I, I think going, you know, even a, a notch deeper, I mean, there were these systems like Watson that IBM was running commercials saying how it was going to revolutionize cancer treatment. And even though I recognize how difficult a problem it was, this sense that a computer is going to be able to help advance biology, which is not how biology has operated for the previous hundred years, was sort of fantastical and um, and very attractive. But in practice, it hasn't worked out that way. No, it hasn't worked out that way. And I think what you really hit upon there is, um, you know, this real kind of issue that actually happens um, around uh, around AI. It, it, and it's just that sometimes the promises of the marketing departments don't quite match up with what actually is technically possible. Um, and you're right that, you know, when Watson first came out, the, the, the bold promises were absolutely incredible. Was, you know, this is going to revolutionize revolutionize healthcare. This is going to, um, this is the most, uh, you know, amazing object that's ever been created by the human race. It's just, you know, these really bold statements. And actually in reality, um, the trials that, that Watson had within certain hospitals you know, it really didn't get beyond the the kind of training stage. It really didn't get beyond the, the point of being heavily supervised by professional doctors who, to be honest, probably had a lot better stuff to do than to, to kind of sit and babysit a, a piece of software. Yeah, I think you acknowledge in the book that even at this point, after years of training, Watson still has a very difficult time looking at images and and telling what type of cancer it is. And it's not nearly as sophisticated as a human looking at it. So maybe that just illustrates how big of a problem it is to put an algorithm in that situation. Yeah, Uh, it definitely does. I want to transition to somewhere uh, that I was sort of surprised to see algorithm involved, and that's in courts, as you mentioned. Uh, In in injustice situations, algorithms are being used, which 
seems so incredibly foreign of a concept because I still have that, you know, TV show mentality of how the justice system works, where there's a judge, there's a jury. It's a very human endeavor uh, that we as a society are deciding out cases. But you illustrate a number of examples where that's not exactly what's happening anymore. No, it's very true. But actually, you know, the, uh, the idea of calculations, at least, or, or very, very simple algorithms, being in the courtroom is actually quite an old idea. It goes back to the to the 1930s. And, and the point about this is that if you are deciding whether or not to award someone bail or how long to send them to, to, to prison for, someone's convicted, part of that decision is going to be a hunch that you have about whether or not they pose a risk to society, about whether or not that individual is going to go on to commit further crimes if you let them out on the streets. Now, as it turns out, on that prediction alone, actually an algorithm can make more accurate predictions than a human can. Um, so this is kind of the thing that's been been realised for a very long time, back back until the um, back since the 1930s. But what's happening now is these algorithms are much more um, more sophisticated. They take on more data, um, and they're used to come up with this recidivism score. They call it essentially a risk score as to whether or not an individual is going to go on to commit a crime, and that is used by the judge to decide on bail and, um, in some cases, to decide on how long a sentence someone should be given. And this system, is it a public resource or a private resource? No, <laughs> no. So uh, there are private companies that sell these algorithms to courtrooms. Um, and the uh, inner workings of these algorithms, this is one of the very big problems about this, that the inner workings of these algorithms are considered intellectual property and so are not generally shared with the public. Um, so what that means is that you can be in a situation, as a young uh, a man called Eric Loomis was um, a couple of years ago, uh, where you are given um, a high risk score, and you are given no information about what led what it was about you that 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 led the algorithm to consider you high risk, and you have no way of arguing against that because you don't know what it is about you that led to that score. And so, how? Uh, like it, with recidivism, we're talking about something in the future where we're talking about assessing risk. So speaking, speaking from a, a mathematician angle, do you see this as a better system or a more accurate system? Or is that even the right question here? Because the data that's coming in must be imperfect. And then we can't see the inner workings of the system either. No, you're right. But I think that you have to remember um you have to be very careful about what you're comparing this system to. So it's not that you're comparing a prediction about what someone's going to do in the future to some perfect prediction or to hindsight, you know, after they've done the crime, the, the, the perfect thing that you could have predicted. You're comparing it to the best prediction that a judge on their own could make at that time. And that's the thing about these, these um, the courtroom example is that whether you like it or not, someone somewhere has to make a prediction about whether this person is going to commit a crime if they're let out on the streets. And so I do think that there is a responsibility to make sure that that prediction is as accurate as it can possibly be while recognising that it's also going to be flawed. And that's a very, very, very tricky balance to, to strike, to, to make sure that you're not, you know, that the benefits outweigh the costs, really, that you're not introducing something that gets more stuff wrong than, than it has got wrong at the moment. 
I think one of the areas that really stuck out to me about this is whenever we're talking about criminal justice, we are sort of wired as humans to uh, to be more receptive to the individual story of where this system goes wrong. Uh, but we also have to think about this in the context of the larger data set that's being uh, this is all being applied to. So there are going to be some false positives that occur here. Um, but we also have to think beyond the false positives. And I think that seems to be what you're trying to get at here is that there is a much larger uh, system at play beyond just looking at the individual stories of where this goes awry. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think that, um, you know, if you ask someone, okay, you're in the courtroom, you're guilty, you know, you, you, you've been convicted of some crime that you know you did, um, who would you rather presided over your future, a human judge, knowing that they make much bigger mistakes, knowing that the range of answers that you could get from that human judge is going to be much broader, or an algorithm which will make a much more accurate prediction. Still make mistakes, but it'll make a more accurate prediction over, over what your future holds in store for you. I think most people would say that they themselves would prefer the human judge because people like to imagine that when there are errors, those errors will go in their favor. The errors will be, you know, will, will mean that they get a lesser sentence. They'll be able to kind of charm over the judge and they'll be, you know, they'll be the outlier in the positive sense. But I think when you're designing a, a criminal justice system for an entire country, you can't allow yourself to be bogged down by that. You have to think about what is the fairest thing for everybody. And, you know, there is no such thing as a perfect system in this. There is no option where everything is nice and everything works out and there's no biases whatsoever. That's not on the table. And I think that actually you have to say really awful things happen. Um some some you know really terrible stories uh things that have happened to people that shouldn't have you have to try and minimize those as much as possible but it's still i think your responsibility to try and make your um your criminal justice system as fair as you possibly can i want to pick up on the idea of mistakes i was talking to a, a computer scientist recently who uh worked on some very famous algorithms and as he said to me uh, one of the most sophisticated algorithms in the world, one that's been invested in as heavily as anything else in the world, can sometimes maybe recommend an item you want to buy. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and like it, he really gave me this impression that, yes, algorithms are in a lot of places we don't expect and they're making key decisions, but they also just aren't as good as we think they are and they're prone to error. And I'm wondering how after you went through all of these stories where error was a common thing, uh, what your uh, feeling was that emerged about all of these algorithms? Um, that error is an inevitable thing, exactly as you just said. I mean, um, you're right. There is this, there is this mismatch, mismatch rather, between what we kind of, you know, the way that we talk about AI being this super intelligent thing that can kind of, you know, um, just totally understand everything that it is to be human and just, you know, manipulate us in these really clever and sophisticated ways. And then exactly as you said, you know, it's like, well, I bought that pair of shoes last week. Why are you showing me that advert for it? Um, and I think that actually we just need to be a lot more realistic about what these things can and can't do and acknowledge that they're going to make mistakes. And I think if we do that, then actually it takes them off their pedestals a little bit. I think, I think we'll stop just 
you know, wholeheartedly trusting everything that they have to say, which is a big problem at the moment. You know, algorithms in courtrooms making really big mistakes and judges just blindly following what they're saying without kind of applying any, um, you know, intuition or, or, or thinking about the wider context. And I think if we do that, if we if we make our algorithms wear their uncertainty a bit more proudly, you know, if they're, they're much more honest about their flaws and we embrace their flaws, I think that's really the, the, the positive future that we can hope for. I love that you're bringing a sense of skepticism to the world of algorithms. <laughs> yeah, and that's what it feels exactly like. Exactly it. That's exactly it. <laughs> uh, so one of the healthy forms of skepticism is accountability, like that it's not just that we're skeptical of them and think about them, that we take it to the next step, that the, these don't get to run uh, just in accordance to themselves without any sense of oversight or uh, a sense of like whether they're right for our society or not. Can you talk about accountability in this context? Because it's a very strange concept in this world that is both public and private at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of think actually one of the very best examples of this because ultimately it comes back down to who has the final say, who who is actually in charge? Is it the machine or is it the human? And I think one of the very best examples of this is actually in driverless cars. So a lot of the, the most famous driverless cars that you know are being tested at, mo- at the moment are a situation where the the you know the algorithm is essentially in control of the car and the human is there as a backstop. If something goes wrong, wrong, it's the human's job to step in in an emergency and to um, and to, to to solve the situation. But I think personally that that's kind of the wrong way round because ultimately, I mean, I'm using this as an analogy for for other algorithms too. But I think you know. <sighs> Humans are really bad at paying attention. We're really bad at being consistent. We're really bad at not being sloppy. And we're really bad at being woken up at the last minute and expecting to perform our absolute greatest without any warning whatsoever. And there are some car companies, Toyota being one of them, which is kind of thinking about this in the other way around. Thinking about, well, hang on a second, all of those things that humans are really bad at is exactly the stuff that algorithms are really good at. It can be there continually, never getting tired, never being sloppy, always being consistent. So why don't you have the human in control? Why don't you have the the human being the one in the driving seat, both literally in this in this particular situation, but you know more more figuratively in other examples, and have the algorithm being the thing that's running in the background, so a guardian, not a chauffeur the algorithm running in the background there to catch whenever the human is making those mistakes. And I think that if you have that, then ultimately all the accountability, all of the responsibility rests very squarely on the shoulders of the human. Um, It's a partnership between human and algorithm, not a choice between them. Is that the direction we're heading with a lot of these algorithms? Uh, yeah, so, so certainly some, I think there are a lot of people who are doing it right. So, I, you know, I, I really like that example of Toyota's Guardian um, algorithm in their cars. But, you know, I think in lots of medical examples, we're doing this too. So um, in cancer diagnosis, in the image screening of cancer diagnosis, the algorithms are really, really good at picking up on really, really, really tiny clues um, within sort of hidden within your biopsies, tiny, tiny clues of, of suspicious cells that are just amongst the vast array of cells. Cells that need to be checked. But at the same time, humans, we're really bad at that, right? Like we often miss stuff. Um, and yet humans are very, very good 
at something called specificity. We almost never see a, a normal cluster of cells and mis misdiagnose it incorrectly think that they're suspicious when they're not. So, you know, the, the, a lot of the really great work, I think, in cancer diagnosis at the moment is creating that, that partnership. So where the algorithm and the human are both exploiting each other's strengths and, and kind of embracing each other's flaws, really. So the algorithm goes through and it flags every tiny little thing that it thinks is suspicious, massively reducing the workload of the human in the process. And then the human comes through and they have the final say. And they go through and say, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, malignant, malign, malignant, benign. Um, so I think there are examples of where people, but, you know, ultimately in that example, that's the human being in, in charge, right? That's the human who is who's front and center at every single step of the process. And the algorithm is there as an assistant, not, not as, a, as a manager. Um, so I think there are examples of where people are doing this right. But I don't think they're happening across the board. And I'd like them to, to, to I'd like to see them happening a bit more. Yeah, I started by saying one reading of this book is that it, it paints a, a bleak future. Uh, but my reading of this book is one of a call to action that uh, I need to not be as complacent about my relationship to the algorithms because they can't do that for me. And I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts on what any one person can do or what any sets of people should be doing to really change this relationship so that it is much more of a partnership. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of this is going to come down to the people who are designing these systems. Um, but I think as an individual, I think it's exactly as you said, right? It's introducing a bit more skepticism into um, how the conversation around AI and algorithms goes. Um, so I have one slightly tongue-in-cheek example in the book of something that I like to call the magic test, um, which is that there is so much hype around AI, right? So much stuff that comes out that is just frankly, complete nonsense. So for example, the other day I was shopping for a fridge and um, this fridge had a sticker on it and it said, this fridge is AI ready, right? I'm pretty sure that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I don't know. I can't conceive of <laughs> what, what that could possibly mean in a perfectly standard fridge, other than maybe it's connected to the internet and you can turn up and down the temperature, you know, on your mobile. I can't I see any other. I can't imagine anything AI. good. It's not except AI. <laughs> it probably costs a hundred dollars more than the other. Exactly. Version. Just for that sticker. So this magic test that, that, um, that, uh, you know, I suggest is that when you see these really bold claims, when you are, um, you know, when someone is telling you about an algorithm or a piece of AI and what it can do, it's worth just taking out all of the really complicated words, um, all of the sort of fancy sounding terms and replacing them with the word magic and seeing if the sentences still make grammatical sense. Because more often than not, if it does still make grammatical sense with the word magic in there, then there's not then this algorithm is probably not capable of the things that it's claiming. You need to dig a little bit deeper. The book is called Hello World, Being Human in the Age of Algorithms. Uh, Hannah Fry, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us on this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank the supporters on our Patreon campaign, David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stephen Meyer Awald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. 
You can visit our website at inquiring.show. You can also support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And I'm your host, Kishore Hari. Indra will be back next week. Today's episode is sponsored by Newsvoice. Newsvoice is a new app that is revolutionizing the way we read news. Shaped by its readers, it shows you different perspectives, so it's truly unbiased, open, and democratized. You get all news in one place. I downloaded Newsvoice to try it out, and I really appreciate how clean and slick the interface is. It seems like a really decent app. Um, you can check out Newsvoice by going to newsvoice.com slash minds. It's free, so check it out, newsvoice.com slash minds. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.